essentially believe that there are two kinds of people in the world. People who are looking to confirm a kind of unified identity, who use that as a way to understand themselves, and people who are interested in exploring the notion of identity through what it is that they do. Welcome to Raw Material, an arts and culture podcast from SFMOMA. This is season four, Lovers. Over the next six episodes, we'll be taking a closer look at the intimate relationship between art and sex, and how some artists use them as complementary tools for erotic sustenance. I'm Chelsea Beck, and I didn't always see art and sex as being so tightly intertwined as I do now. Yes, my path of artist to curator to creator and host of a podcast about women and masturbation gives me a certain worldview. Does the female form make you uncomfortable, Mr. Lebowski? But just picture for a second some of the first images created by early humans on the walls of a cave. If you're only seeing crude drawings of animals, I encourage you to get a little less PG. What about vulvas? Are you seeing any? Add some vulvas in there as well. Is that better? It is much more accurate when you see it that way. In southwest France in 2007, an archaeologist discovered a half-ton block of limestone engraved with a vulva. Dated at 37,000 years old, this stone vulva is the oldest artwork. Proof that there was more on our early ancestors' minds than just their next meal. And cave art includes lots of vulvas and phalluses and sexual activity not intended for procreation. The good stuff. So what's the big deal about really, really old sexy pictures? Well, my point here is that art and sex are both incredibly fundamental activities. And maybe, were it not for carnal desire, we might not have art. For the most part, Western art has established a huge false divide between mind and body. It elevates explanations of the mind over expressions of the body, and we have colonialism, racism, and misogyny to thank for that. These systems foster competition instead of cooperation, express difference in terms of deficiency, and they create binary relationships instead of exchange and fluidity and the exchanging of fluids. That's a sex joke. There'll be more, I promise. Which brings me back to the person you heard at the beginning of this episode, Nayland Blake. Nayland uses the pronoun they, so don't get it twisted. They are an artist, educator, and curator. Their interests and desires are impressively just as cohesive as they are diverse. Well, I guess I've always been a person who finds a lot of different things hot, right? And I guess that the combination between the the way that I approach making my work and the way that I approach things sexually is that I will uh, make something in the studio and then ask myself the question, why is that what I wanted to make? What What are the 
sort of cultural forces or, or, or parts of my own personal history that led me to make this thing. And it's the same thing sexually. It's like, I, okay, I find something hot. Why is it that I find that hot? You know, why is it that, why is it that that turns me on? And so there's a sort of method of doing things and investigating them, you know, as a way of sort of understanding where those impulses come from. I met Nayland when they were a professor of mine at Bard College. Nayland also went there, but from 1978 to 1982, years before me, practically in a different era. A time when making art meant making really big paintings. And Nayland has never made really big paintings, as far as I know. In the late 90s, when Nayland was my professor, they were the first person I'd ever met who wore their masculinity like drag. Plaid was the new glitter. And that was the beginning for me. My understanding of gender, that it was essentially a performance a restrictive and limited performance began to crystallize. Their look has changed over the last 20 years, but Nalen was and still is a pretty imposing figure. I'd say they're friendlier looking now than they were then, but maybe I'm just older and less easily intimidated. They have piercing blue eyes and tattoos running up their arms, and their belly is expertly proportioned. A convex meniscus runs between their waist and chest. Nayland was part of the gay bear scene then. They looked like some kind of road warrior, a hell's angel or a long haul trucker. The kicker is, Nayland didn't even know how to drive. They grew up in New York City, bookish and artsy. And this trucker look was a fuck you to everyone who thought they knew what bookish artsy people looked like. And I thought it was pretty radical. It was rad. My parents, when I was growing up in the city, I think they had this idea that they were going to lead this kind of New York bohemian lifestyle. So they were, there was a period where they were like buying like every book from Grove Press. So like I grew up with a copy of Psychopathia Sexualis in the house and a copy of a couple of different Marquis de Sade books and a copy of this book, um, My Secret Life, which is this Edwardian sexual memoir. And that was like some of the first porn that I found in my, you know, in my parents' living room. Psychopathia Sexualis by Richard von Kraft Ebbing was one of the first books to explain homosexuality, fetishism, sadism, and masochism. It was published in the late 19th century and it was really influential to Freud, Proust, the Surrealists, but not all of Nayland's childhood influences were as highfalutin. If you want to understand, like, the basis of my sexuality, you just have to look at the Batman TV series from 1966 and the Addams Family series from that same time. If the spiders don't get him, and being shy and modest doesn't get him, use the trap. Basically, like everything that I'm interested in ends up in those in those two series. Well, of course, Nayla never asked me about my sex life at studio visits. That would be gross and weird and inappropriate. Mm, but but what did make me hot back then? I'm just thinking out loud here. 
guys in bands. Ugh, so lame and cliche, I know. But I think that my lust for these types of dudes mostly came from wanting to be like them, cavorting on stage, embodying something electric. Instead of claiming those feelings for myself, it was easier and less scary to be desired by those who were claiming it for themselves. If I had known that then, I would have been making better art. But Nayland would ask me about the music I listened to, what films I watched, what books I read. They'd press me to explain why these things were important to me. This was an exercise, a pretty challenging one, a way to understand that my life outside the studio informed everything inside of it. This connection made so much more content available to me. My awareness of the lenses I was seeing the world through changed how I saw the world. And an even cooler superpower was the realization that what I made inside the studio changed how I behaved outside of it. I started to feel more powerful. I'm not asking anybody to automatically come to the understanding that their identity is a constructed performance. But I am asking them if they're in Miami, if I am asking them, like, why do you use a term like instinct for your decision to pick up a particular type of camera and point it at a particular type of situation? As I've seen and read about Nayland's work over the years, I don't think their process is that far removed from this exercise that they do with their students, that, that they did with me. Nayland fearlessly articulates what interests, shames, or obsesses them. And, you know, there seems to be quite a lot of stuff that does. Maybe that sounds really simple, but it's actually a rabbit hole of interrogation and code cracking. For what, you ask? How about crippling the hierarchy of more visible identifying characteristics such as race and gender? I said rabbit hole for a reason. Because rabbits are kind of a big deal for Nayland. Over their decades-long career, they've drawn bunnies, worn bunny suits, displayed bunny sculptures, and made videos starring bunnies. The bunny embodies many things for Nayland. For one, it's a reference to Br'er Rabbit from the Uncle Remus stories of the American South. Br'er's a trickster who's a little bit good and a little bit bad. The character comes from African folktales, and Nayland uses the bunny as a device to explore things like their biracial parentage. But the bunny is also a symbol of vulnerability and physical helplessness. And bunnies are super horny. Everyone knows that. I identify in many of the scenes that I'm in as a uh, queer switch, which means uh, generally that you have to ask more questions. Side note here, questions. Yes, questions. For both art and sex, asking questions is essential to ensure the quality of the final product. And Nayland happens to be very good at asking questions in the studio. So it makes a lot of sense that questions are also central to their sexual relationships. Queer means, to me, a kind of 
identification with sexuality that does not fall into most normative patterns. It also, to me, has a kind of political identification. And then switch is usually a term used in the kink scene as somebody who is not a standard top or bottom, but moves back and forth between different roles. I've been, over the years, kind of active in the gay community, in the bear community, in uh, the BDSM community. For the past five years, have been exploring the furry community. So that's, that's some of it. Furries are fans of anthropomorphized animals from popular culture or from someone's imagination. For the most part, they're not people who have sex in mascot costumes, contrary to what you may have heard. But as with any role-playing, the suit allows the wearer to feel and explore things outside of themselves, including sexual things. We'll get back to that later on the podcast. One of the first pieces I saw of Nalen's is a video from 1998. It's called Gorge. In it, Nalen sits in a chair, shirtless, exposing their soft white belly. This gesture alone is complicated since Nayland is, as I mentioned before, biracial. A black man who's also shirtless, but standing, feeds him a variety of foods. It's a scene plucked from a kink community of people who call themselves gainers and encouragers. Nayland is the gainer, meaning the weight gainer, and the other man encourages their eating. As the hour-long video continues, the roles of submissive and dominant shift. Pleasure and discomfort is exchanged, and food takes on a symbolic power. Nalen showed that video alongside another work called Feeder 2. It's a gingerbread house about the size of a backyard shed, but it's not cute. Actually, it looks like a place in which to be punished, to be left inside of. There's no decoration, and it's dark inside. The impulse to make that piece uh, really came out of my thinking of like, well, here's this thing that kids hear about all their life, right? They hear this the story of Hansel and Gretel, and they hear about this house that's made of cake. What if it, you know, what if I actually made it? What if it actually existed? So that was really out of an impulse of, taking an idea in the culture and manifesting it physically and seeing what happened. So those two things in conjunction were sort of a map of my sexual interests, but then also cultural interests. And, you know, my interest in gaining weight in part had to do with a lifetime of being like, uh, you know, fat being the worst thing that you could be and and being shameful and so in part it was eroticizing that and and working with that and then a couple of years after I I made that piece I realized that as a kid I something that made a huge impact on me was going to see like 
the Christmas windows at like Lord and Taylor or something like that. And they had done one year big dioramas of different buildings from the world as gingerbread houses. So I have these um, family photos of some of like the gingerbread houses from there. So that was also probably part of the impulse in making the gingerbread house. But I think all of this stuff kind of goes back and forth. So back to what Nalan said at the beginning, remember? About there being two kinds of people in the world? In a 2013 interview from the Brooklyn Rail, they put it a bit differently. Here, I'm, I'm going to read Nalan's words. I believe there are two types of people. People who fuck to confirm an idea they already have about their identity, and people who fuck to explore all the possibilities of their identity. Then Nalan goes on to say, People have taken an exploration as a confirmation or a closing down. From the outside, that's more comforting because if someone else is confirming their identity, that means you do not have to question yours. If you acknowledge that there is the possibility of exploring your identity, whatever that might be, through the process of making things and thinking about them, then the burden of why you are choosing not to do that is on you. And now this is back to my thoughts, Chelsea's thoughts. I'm not reading Nayland anymore. There are many reasons why an individual might not want to or cannot explore their identity. The two that are most apparent to me are fear about what you'll discover and there's circumstance. Like who has time to explore identity when they're living hand to mouth, when their existence is threatened? To be in a position where self-exploration comes easily is to be in a privileged position. But it's also an opportunity to indict the systems that privilege some and punish others. Artists create opportunities for the rest of us to gain new insight into our own situations, even if it might not be something that we want to see. Artists are keen observers they give us courage. And in some cases, they put their lives on the line. At this very polarized moment in time, one of the most entrenched and constricting forces influencing the modern human conditioning is loosening its grip. A vast, non-binary spectrum of sexuality and gender is starting to be recognized. And with this spectrum coming into focus, our collective creative potential rises. In my life, I have seen people develop a very different attitude towards their sexuality. You know, I was born in 1960, so I think a lot of the people that I saw growing up acted as if they were sort of condemned to their sexuality. And I see now, um, particularly a lot of younger people, um, uh, realizing that they can uh, describe their sexuality in various ways, um, f almost from day to day. There's a popular myth about creativity thriving in oppressed times. And though I am constantly awed and humbled by those who risk so much to make art, I also imagine what it would be like to play 
unburdened, unthreatened, to define our own boundaries. Like the safest space created among attentive lovers. In the next episode of Lovers, we'll consider Carolee Schneeman's epic vulvic space. Also, that's my new band name. Plus, her heterosexual radicality, if there even is such a thing. Also, pornography that brings out the best in humanity? I'm just going to go grab my credit card. And they'll be more Nayland, because they've been all about this stuff for a long time, and you haven't even heard about their fursona yet. That means furry persona. Thanks for spending your time with me. I'm Chelsea Beck, and this is season four of Raw Material, Lovers. Most of the music you've heard throughout the show is by Annie Rossi. Subscribe to Raw Material wherever you manage your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. And follow us on Instagram at Raw Material Podcast for episode updates and behind-the-scenes shots of what we're up to. See you next time.